take your scriptures with you and turn to Matthew chapter 11. We continue our reading in Matthew's gospel tonight, coming to the end of chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Let us pray again before we hear the word of God being read. Our gracious God and Father, upon the occasion of the public reading of Scripture and its preaching, we humbly come before you, O Lord, confessing our great need for the illuminating work and grace of your Holy Spirit. Father, if we are not helped by you, there is no help for us. We pray, O Father, that you would grant us ears to hear, that you would allow us, Father, to recognize your authority in this word, that you would allow us to recognize the voice of the Master, our Lord Jesus Christ, that this word to us would be like meat for our soul, that it would be like light in the darkness, that it would indeed be a force that straightens what is crooked in us, that it would indeed be water refreshing us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would give to us according to the measure of your grace, not according to the measure of our preparedness or our merits. Oh, Lord, for the sake of your Son, to magnify his mediation and mercies and majesty as Savior, grant us to hear and believe and to do in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is God's word. Beloved, our Lord Jesus in this little paragraph is continuing to address the same people that he was just addressing in the prior paragraph, the people that he spoke of in the cities of Bethsaida, the people he spoke of in the city of Chorazin, the people that he spoke of in the city of Capernaum, he's continuing to address this generation who has rejected him, whom he has not satisfied, whom John the Baptist has not satisfied. And why is this generation unsatisfied with Jesus? 
Well, in our text tonight, we learn they are unsatisfied because they are too wise for such a simple Savior. They are too smart, too rich in understanding to receive from God a Savior Son who gifts them the kingdom. They are smarter than that. They know that the kingdom has to be worked for, that the kingdom has to be earned, that the kingdom is a reward for those who will put themselves under the heavy yoke of the law of Moses and the heavy yoke of the Pharisees and the scribes' interpretation and application of the law of Moses. So they are no fools. They can see right through this Jesus. And of course, that means because they are brilliant in their own mind, they are people dwelling in a land of darkness in the city of Jerusalem. They thought the land of darkness was outside the borders of Israel, where all the Gentiles lived. But Jesus is coming to them tonight to say, you, leaders of Israel, you who say you are wise, you are the fools. You are the ones living in a land of darkness. This passage really falls out in three very brief movements. And the first movement is perhaps the most stunning. In the first movement of our text, verse 25 and 26, Jesus rejoices in the Father's divine discrimination. Now, what a fascinating thing this is. Can you imagine a church of Jesus Christ calling out to the world, come and rejoice with us in the divine discrimination of Almighty God. We like to hide divine discrimination. We like not to talk about it to people. We think it will mess up evangelism. But look what our Lord Jesus is doing. He is rejoicing, giving thanks for divine discrimination, meaning that his Father has chosen some and not others. And it is a cause of praise in the heart of the divine son. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What has the Father hidden? He has hidden the good news of the kingdom. That is what is meant by things. He has hidden the good news about the rule of God in the salvation of sinners through his son. He has hidden that. Now, of course, this does not mean that the scribes and the Pharisees and the priestly class of Israel are full of aptitude and skill and able to find this. Now, this means that the Lord is allowing them to remain in their death 
remain in all of the noetic effects of sin. Noetic meaning the activity of the mind and the heart to understand. The Lord is letting them remain in it. He's passing over them deliberately. And by that, it comes to us under the expression of the Father has hidden it from them. Who are these, who are these wise and understanding? As I've already said, they are the religious leadership of Israel. Why do we make that point? Because we can see this mounting up, ripening, as we move through Matthew 9 and 10 to 11. In Matthew 9, 3, it's the scribes who come and say, this man is blaspheming when he forgives the sins of the paralytic. In 9-11, it's the Pharisees who say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In Matthew 9-34, it is again the Pharisees who say, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Now, each of those three expressions from Matthew 9, by the leadership of Israel, are rightly put under the category of wisdom, of understanding. These men are speaking not just for themselves, but they want others to hear. They want to keep their disciples in darkness concerning the rule of God unto salvation through Jesus Christ. And so they are publicly challenging Jesus with their understanding, with their wisdom. And their wisdom is not wisdom, and their understanding is no understanding. So the Father has purposely kept them in the dark. The Father has purposely left them in their blindness. It was his good pleasure to do so, which is a common Old Testament expression that it just simply sums up the mystery of the divine decree. It was his good pleasure. It was his good pleasure. It was his good pleasure. Does, does that which is God's good pleasure, is it your good pleasure? Beloved, it is our good pleasure as well that in the wisdom of God, he hides the rule of salvation from those who are puffed up in a satanic, demonic understanding of reconciliation and approval with God. But the Lord is so gracious, he will come yet even before we're done and even say to these, Come to me, for there are even some yet who can be rescued. Now, why is the Lord hiding the rule of his salvation? Simply, it is divine judgment. We've heard about this before as we've moved our way through all of Scripture. Isaiah 5.21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Isaiah 29, 14 says, The wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Jeremiah 8, 8, How can you say we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? The intended answer is none. In the house of God, in the house of Moses, there are men who pretend to be wise but have none. 
And they are the ones who reject the Son. The wise and understanding say, we are the heirs of all that God is doing in the world. We know the way of salvation. We know how to be approved by God. We are instructed in the law. We know his will. We approve what is excellent. We are guides to the blind. We are a light to those in darkness. We are instructors to the foolish. We are teachers of children. We will teach you the way. And you probably have recognized those several phrases have come right out of Romans 2. The Jewish leadership presented themselves to all men as the true heirs of the rule of God's salvation in the world. And that if you wanted to understand it, enter into it, you came to them. Jesus is telling us right here that these men were as ignorant as somebody who has never heard the law of God as ignorant as someone who has never heard about the kingdom of God. They have lots of words in their mouth. They will tell you how to manage your sin and be approved by God, but it is all folly. And it is proven to be folly that they cannot fall at the feet of Jesus and say, mine eyes have seen the salvation of Yahweh. Who said that? An old man who didn't fall because he probably wouldn't have been able to get up. But his name was Simeon. Do you see what the Lord is doing? The Lord Jesus is showing the whole world that he refuses to boast in the creature. He refuses to boast in the most perfected, most visible most well-known religious creature, even. The Jewish teacher. The Jewish rabbi. In Jerusalem. Memorizing the law front and back. Talking about it for hours on end every day. Jesus says, I will not honor that. For it is blindness. Because it cannot, will not, see and receive the gift of Messiah, the gift of God's Son, as the answer to man's sin, as the answer to approval with God. They want all of their teaching and their traditions to be the answer to your sin and to approval with God. Jesus says, I am. Is that too simple for you? If it is, you're in blindness. We'll come back to that point. The text says that he has hidden, but he has revealed. Apocalypsis is the word. The very title of the last book of your New Testament. This is the verbal form. He has revealed the hidden things to little children. This means those who are the least capable who are the least learned. Have you ever asked a two-year-old a question about algebra? Those who are the most dependent, those who are last 
in human society, the Lord takes them as an emblem for the very ones he is giving the kingdom of salvation to. The very ones whom God visits and blesses and makes known the rule of his salvation are the ones who everyone thinks don't know anything. This delights the Lord. It delights him to give the entirety of salvation to those who have nothing to boast in. And having received it, will boast now in the one who has gifted them by grace, his kingdom, and has made them citizens of it forever. But let's take a special note of that word revealed. It is indeed a verb, second person. You you revealed, O Father, my Father. You revealed. It is a divine action, divinely targeted. The rule of God's salvation has not been worked out by the little children. The rule of God's salvation has not been searched out and discovered by the little children. The rule of God's salvation has not been figured out by the little children. It was not studied out by the little children. It was revealed to them. And though there may be some notable agency in them as they attended upon a teaching of the Lord, heard his word preached, they read their Bible, there may be some notable agency, but the Lord wants to put the emphasis up front that he willingly revealed the rule of his salvation to the little ones. Why does he do it? Yes, Jesus says, Father. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He does it this way to amplify his grace, to magnify his mercy toward the little children, to demonstrate his refusal to glorify the creature. You and I are the little children. We are the fools in the world. And yes, there's another sermon parallel to this text of why we baptize our children for this very point. Don't bring that baby to the waters of baptism. He doesn't know anything yet. Perfect. Say it again. For it will reveal the greatness and graciousness of the rule of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Who was ready for his incarnation? No one. Beloved, this is the way of our God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, The Apostle Paul, taking, of course, a lesson from our Lord Jesus Christ, put it this way. See, I thought I knew right where this was, and now I am showing myself unable to find it. But God chose what is foolish, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Does this mean that there are none who are chosen, who have the highest credentials 
of learning doesn't mean that at all. You don't have to say, I have a PhD, I must, I must renounce it so I can become a Christian. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean this. The more learned we are, the more credentialed we are, even in theology, we must be extra careful to speak like good old John Newton, who at the end of his life said, I am old, I am decrepit, and soon dead, but I know two things. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. We must be able to not puff our learning, but instead boast in Christ and the simplicity of the gift of salvation by faith alone. That's the first movement of our text. Our Savior rejoicing in the Father's divine discrimination. The second movement is our, our, savior, our savior justifying. Our Savior justifying his knowledge of the Father's divine discriminating grace. This is what the next verse is about. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What is verse 27 doing in our text? Beloved, this is Jesus stating why he alone is uniquely qualified to know these discriminating ways of the Father. Because all things are hidden in the Son. Because all things have been handed over to the Son. All things concerning the rule of God's salvation of men have been handed over to the Son by the Father. And he and the Father have a mutual indwelling where they know one another's will without fog, without confusion. There's an immediacy in their knowledge of one another. For they are one God. So Jesus here in verse 27 is justifying his knowledge of the Father's divine, divinely discriminating grace. And his purpose of stating this isn't simply to quiet those who say, how do you know that the Father has hidden these things? His purpose is, yes, to answer that question, but also to go on from that question and say, I know because I and the Father are one. I am the divine Son of the divine Father. No one has knowledge of the Son except the Father. No one has knowledge of the Father except the Son. This is divine mutuality, testifying to the divinity of both Father and Son, Lord of heaven and earth. So the bottom line is the wise and understanding do not possess at will the knowledge of God. Just because they want to set their, their elbow grease to it, they do not possess at will the knowledge of the rule of God's salvation and the way of God in salvation. The wise and understanding can't just go and get that because they put in a 40-hour study week. No. 
This knowledge is only possessed by the Father and the Son and the one whom the Son reveals it to. And you can see in verse 27 the repeat of the word reveal. It is repeated because it's, of course, at the end of verse 25. The Lord is still talking about this divinely discriminating way of salvation to magnify and amplify the grace of the triune God and not the creature. The big conceit, and you probably know what the word conceited means, proud of ourselves, puffed up with ourselves. The big conceit of the teachers in Israel is that they have put in the work of studying the scriptures and that they alone know how to be right with God. But the Lord Jesus is telling us in this text that the nation of Israel does not have possession of the rule of God's salvation. The Son has possession of it. And he gives it and reveals it to whomever he pleases. That's our second movement in our text. The Son justifies his knowledge of the Father's divinely discriminating grace. And then we come to the third and final movement of our text, verse 28 through 30. And beloved, the Lord finishes this little discourse with the most simple, gratuitous, generous summons to all who hear him to come to me. Do not get tangled up in your head about the mysterious, discriminating grace of God. You're tangled up if you cannot hear Jesus say, come to me. And he's saying this to everyone in Israel. He's saying this to everyone ever since he has spoken it. Come to me. He must confess the truthfulness of God in the salvation of sinners. That's verse 25. In fact, the word I thank you is literally the word I confess. Lord Jesus is the perfect confessor of the ways of God. But notice his movement. He does not want any weak soul, any little child, any one of his elect. He does not want any of them to get lost in a labyrinth of overthinking the mysteries of the divine decree. So he says, come to me. And I am certain that this is stated this way to be a bold contrast to everything that leaders and teachers of Israel have been saying to the nation. You come to us to learn the ways of God. You come to us to learn how to deal with your sin. You come to us to find approval with God. We'll explain the law to you. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 23, as he tells them, those leaders of Israel, you create burdens that you put on the shoulders of God's people that none of them can bear. So when Jesus says, come to me, he is giving every Israelite permission to separate 
from the authorities and teachers of Israel and come to the son of Israel, the servant son. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why are they rightly described by our Lord as those who labor or toil and are heavy laden? Because they are laboring and toiling under the weight that the traditions of the Pharisees have put upon them and have told them that their conscience cannot be at peace with God unless they are doing all of these rules and regulations that the Pharisees and scribes have elaborately built far above the word of God, the traditions of men. The Lord Jesus is saying to them, I will be your teacher. I will be the one who will quiet your conscience. I will put you at peace with God, and only I. I will give you rest. You know, this same Greek language here is visible in that first meeting our Lord had with Peter. Peter goes out and he fishes all night. And do you remember how much he brought back in after fishing all night? A big fat zero. He says, Lord, we have been toiling all night and we have nothing to show for it. We're not at rest. We're exhausted. And even if I go to sleep all day, I won't be at rest because I have not earned my bread through fishing. And Jesus says, go back out and cast your net on the other side of the boat. And the Lord puts the fishermen to rest with a word. It's not only a revelation of who Jesus Christ is, as the Lord of creation, as the Lord of Peter. It is our Lord and Savior revealing early to Peter, one of his chosen disciples, that Jesus will be the provider of everything that ordinarily brings a man to toil and misery. Jesus will care for him. Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The scribes, the Pharisees, and the priests were not gentle and lowly. The yoke that they put on men was heavy and demanding and bitter. It was filled, as we said, with the traditions of men. They had rules stacked upon rules that told the conscience of the church of God in those days that you are not at peace with God until you follow and work out all of these regulations. The Lord Jesus is saying, my yoke is light. Now notice, the Lord is not without a yoke. The Lord is not an antinomian. He's not coming and bringing salvation and then say, now you're free, go live as you wish. There is a yoke in the rule of God's salvation. Which means that the Lord, like an an animal, puts upon us a yoke to direct us and to guide us. 
but he bears the other half of it. His strength is under the yoke. His encouragement is under the yoke. His nearness is under the yoke. And there is indeed a direction that his, he is going to take us as we receive the rule of God's salvation, freely given and received by faith alone. There will, though, be direction. But it will not be the direction of one lording over us, hitting us, as it were, with a whip every, with every infraction. The Lord Jesus Christ frequently took his disciples away to a quiet place after a very public day of ministry. And the scripture says several times that he took them away to rest. But that wasn't simply a rest to get away from the noise. It wasn't simply laying on their back on the fields, staring up at the skies and counting the cloud formations. Look at, that's a bunny. This rest that he took his disciples into was a rest in the communion with God in prayer. He took them to his father, the very father spoken so heavily of in this text. The rest that Jesus gives to those who come to him is a true approval, a final approval and acceptance with his father reconciled through the Son. And even in their failings under the yoke, even in their complaining at times under the yoke, the Lord Jesus is always there to encourage and strengthen a yoke-bearer himself. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's something that's revolutionary about these words in what was ancient Jerusalem. The religious life in ancient Jerusalem was not easy and light. It was heavy and demanding and brittle and full of critique. But the Lord Jesus says, come under my yoke. I know all about its weight. I will walk you through the life of salvation, and you shall not fail, for I bear its weight, and I go with you. Beloved, the Lord Jesus is calling us to come to him, come to him for salvation, come to him for sanctification. He's calling us to say no to all the false teachers who come to us with their wisdom and their understanding and say, I will help you manage with your sin. I will bring you the rule of God's salvation. Think about a parent. Think about the parent who, if they end up sitting too long across the table from somebody who's ready to give them their wisdom and understanding, they will go away harassed and helpless. The very words that the Lord spoke about his church at the end of Matthew 9 when he saw them under the care of the Pharisees. So a parent sits down and this person says, you got to read this book. you got to enroll your kids in this program. you got to do this in the evening hours. you got to do this in the morning hours. you got to change the diet. you got to do this. you got to do that. Overwhelming exhaustion. Think about the theologian. 
Think about the theologian who sits down across from a theologian who is 20 years ahead of them in reading, in knowledge, and that theologian across the table presents themselves as the one with wisdom and understanding. And they say, have you read this book? Have you read that book? Have you watched this YouTube series? Have you mastered this material? Have you learned this language? Exhausting. I don't know if we realize how scandalous what Jesus is saying here. He certainly isn't offering us a program of mediocrity. There's a yoke, right? But listen to what he's saying. You are free to believe that I, the Son of the Father, have given you the whole kingdom by simply coming to me as your Savior. And you are free to live a simple life of faith. You don't have to be a super apostle. You don't have to be a super parent. You don't have to be a super Christian. You don't have to be a super theologian. You can just come under my yoke. I will lead you to and from the Lord's Day worship of God. I will walk you through all the contours of the simple Ten Commandments. But we will stop looking after the the commandments of men. We will stop looking after the 150 commandments of that church tradition and that church tradition. We will simply live a simple Christian life and rejoice that it is all finished in Jesus Christ. And the wise and understanding don't like it because it pours water on all the little fires of their self-salvation projects that they want to keep burning. This is a call for the unbeliever to come and a call for the Christian to come again and again to this Savior who gives you everything and helps you turn away from all of the folly of men who think they're wise. Let us come. Let us pray. Father, we confess, O Lord, that we are so quickly and easily attracted to those who come to us presenting their wisdom and their understanding of how to deal with our sin, how to deal with the sin of our children, how to work us into a salvation that's by our own doing, striving. We confess, Lord, that this is very attractive to us because it helps us look upon something that's the work of our own hands, something we can measure as having been done on our own calendar. Many in Israel were attracted to it, but woe to those who were leaders of it. Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ opposes them, that he has opposed them here before us tonight that he has said the most shocking and stunning thing about him, that it has been hidden from them, the rule of God's salvation. Lord, we thank you that it has been revealed to us little children. And we thank you, O Lord, that we have the words of our Savior 
even now pressed upon us by your spirit to persuade us that his yoke is recognizable. It is not exhausting. The commandments of God are not burdensome. 1 John 5.3 And if men have made them so, it is not the fault of Christ. It is the fault of men. The way of salvation is not difficult. It is simple. Casting all of our hopes, casting all of our sins, casting even all of our righteousness away and clinging to Christ, coming to Christ, being comforted by Christ. Father, we do pray that you would strengthen our hearts to not be fooled by the wisdom and understanding of unbelieving men. That we would have ears to hear if they are boasting in the Savior or boasting in knowledge, boasting in the Savior or boasting in their works, boasting in the Savior or boasting in their, even their worship, even their church tradition. Oh, Lord, give us ears to hear so that we would not fall prey to those who would bring us under a heavy yoke that will never deliver. Father, we, we ask now as we come to the table that you would refresh us and renew us in the greatness of your loving heart. In Jesus' name, amen.